It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Well, if the first week of the new year has shown us anything... It's that Joe Biden and Donald Trump are basically living on different planets when it comes to their approach to American democracy. Tonight, I'm going to talk to House Speaker Emerita Nancy Pelosi about all of it. Plus, President Obama has reportedly floated David Pluff, my old boss, as the type of senior strategist who might be useful to the Biden campaign. Of course he would be. And David is going to join me tonight as well. But we do want to start tonight with some new reporting from ABC News that's shedding greater light on what Trump was doing and, more importantly, not doing. On January 6th, as a mob pushed its way into the Capitol, becoming more and more violent as the minutes ticked by, Trump was reportedly just not interested in doing more to stop it. And as Trump learned that his own vice president had to be rushed to a secure location, Trump reportedly responded, so what? So what? Trump accepted the violence that day. He liked the threat to democracy then, the whipping up of violence on his behalf, the anger. And he still does. And that's quickly emerging as the core argument in President Biden's reelection campaign. In a speech on Friday, Biden called democracy the most urgent question of our time, saying Trump is willing to sacrifice it. And just this afternoon, speaking at Mother Emanuel Church, he compared the perpetuation of the big lie to those who denied the outcome of the Civil War. Biden is imploring Americans to save democracy from the man who, by his own account, wants to destroy it. But as President Biden leans into this contrast with Trump, this particular line of attack, some seem to think it's just kind of old news. It's all in the past. Republican Senator Mitt Romney told The New York Times, as a Biden campaign theme, I think the threat to democracy pitch is a bust. January 6th will be four years old by the election. Biden needs fresh material and new attack rather than kicking a dead political horse. Now, he's been a defender of democracy, uh, Mitt Romney has been but a dead political horse of a one that's quite a visual there. But here's the thing. It is not dead at all. None of this is in the past. This is directly connected to how Trump would approach a second term. I mean, just look at what we've learned in the past few days alone. Just this morning, Trump suggested that if he is reelected, he would have President Biden indicted. One day before an appeals court in D.C. hears arguments on Trump's claim that presidential immunity protects him from prosecution. Over the weekend, Three years to the day after the very real insurrection, Trump's son posted in part, happy fake insurrection day. I do hope that it was the start of something real, though. The start of something real. Also over the weekend, Republican Congresswoman Elise Stefanik took a page out of Trump's authoritarian playbook, refusing to commit to certifying the 2024 presidential results. And you may have missed the story out of Illinois with all of that happening, but it is particularly telling. Trump reportedly failed to sign the Illinois State Loyalty Pledge, which is a pledge against advocating for an overthrow of the government. It's been around for a long time, decades. He even signed it back in 2016. He signed it in 2020, but he did not sign it this year. He's leaving the door open for a coup. He's telling us what he plans to do if he does not get his way. 
So no, I'm not quite sure this is kicking a dead horse. All of those anti-democratic forces that were alive on January 6th are still very much alive. January 6th was not an isolated moment. It was a reflection of Trump's approach to governing. Trump himself is not putting this in the past. He's actually embracing it. He's not just reminiscing here. He's planning for how he would govern in the future. Joining me now is ABC News chief Washington correspondent Jonathan Carl. He's the co-anchor of ABC's This Week and author of the new book, Tired of Winning, and one of the reporters who reported all of these new details over the weekend. So I wanted to start there because we've heard bits and pieces about Trump's inaction on January 6th, and you wrote about a lot of it in your book. But what stuck out most to you about some of the new reporting from this weekend that you were responsible for? Uh, and we, we have heard a lot. I wrote about this. The January 6th committee did an entire primetime hearing yeah. on 187 minutes of inaction, Trump in the White House while the Capitol was under attack. What's significant here are, are really are a couple of things. One, it's Dan Scavino. Mm. And understand, understand who Dan Scavino is. This is the guy who's worked for Trump since he was a teenager. He was his caddy. Decades. Uh, he, he was the most loyal guy. There's only two people in the world allowed to tweet from real Donald Trump, and it was Dan Scavino and Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was in charge of the social media. He was his deputy chief of staff. His office was right next to the Oval Office. Nobody was closer outside of maybe Ivanka in the Trump White House. So to hear him provide this vivid description to investigators of what he witnessed, because he was also one of the few people that was with Trump for the entirety mm-hmm. of January 6th, so for a little bit of time where he went to dinner later in the day. He was with Trump, and he describes Trump arms folded, honed in on the TV, watching the riot play out on Fox News as Scavino himself is going in and pleading with him to do something, to put out some kind of a message to call the attackers off. And as the others, Mark Meadows, Ivanka, the White House lawyers are doing the same. And he says that Trump, to the investigators, is non-responsive, is non-responsive, is angry, Angry, not even looking at them, looking at the TV, angry, but saying they are angry on my behalf. Right. The people attacking the Capitol are angry on my behalf. He wasn't angry about the violence. He was angry that the election he felt had been stolen. That's what he was saying. So this is explicit. And again, this isn't Liz Cheney saying it. Mm. This isn't me writing it in a book. No, it's Uh, Dan Scavino. Dan Scavino refused to talk to the January 6th committee. I was unable to speak with him for, for my book. This is an eyewitness account under oath from somebody who is as close to the president, the former president, as anybody, and is still with him to this day. Still with him to this day. Now, one of the other pieces of your reporting was about Trump's response to Mike Pence, his vice president, the threat of him being hanged and under threat from people. And in your reporting, uh, per Dan Scavino, he said, so what? That was Trump's response. Uh, I mean, this is, and again, tremendous reporting on, on from the ABC News investigative team. I, I want to say d- fantastic reporting. Nick Luna was one of the president's, the former president's body men, mm-hmm. just a, you know, the his personal assistant. And Nick Luna is the person that tells Trump on January 6th that Mike Pence had to be evacuated from the Senate chamber and taken to a secure location because of the violence at the Capitol. Mm-hmm. And the response, again, according to Nick Luna, Another Trump loyalist who, by the way, continued to work for him for a long time in Mar-a-Lago. This is not, you know, some Trump critic. This is, again, isn't Liz Cheney saying this. This is Nick Luna saying that Trump's response was, so what? And the investigators, you know, ask, what, 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 what did you take that to mean? That he, did, he wasn't concerned uh, that his loyal vice president might be 
in physical danger. And the fact that he's such a loyalist to such an important piece. Now, you also talked to Trump about that day, and we want to play a little bit of that and talk about that as well. Now we're living in an era of a second. You heard those chants. That was terrible. I mean, was, you know, the... He could have, well, the people were very angry. We're saying hang my Because it's, it's common sense, John, it's common sense that you're supposed to protect. How can you, if you know a vote is fraudulent, right? Yeah. How can you pass on a fraudulent vote to Congress? It's common sense. It's very consistent is the point. You had spoken with him about it. Close aides have said this. So for anyone who's thinking, there's no way he said that. There's a lot of evidence that's there's, backing there's that There's a lot up. of evidence. There's Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony. But, but that, listening to that sound, again, in conjunction with what we've heard from Scavino and Luna, I mean, th- this is a really important point. And, and, and to your point in the open of this show, this is not old news. Uh, this is Trump's state of mind and what truly I think are the defining hours of the Trump presidency. Mm -hmm. And by the way, I think he sees that day as the defining moment of the Trump presidency. He sees January 6th as a great moment because the people came to Washington for him, because they agreed with him that the election was stolen, again, because they were angry on his behalf. But to hear him telling me in that interview, which was just a couple of months after January 6th, that it's common sense Mm. that people would want to call for the, the, the execution of his vice president. And he's justifying it by saying they're angry. Again, the exact same way Dan Scavino describes what Trump said in real time on January 6th. Now, you have obviously written books about Trump. You know a lot about him. One of the things that stuck out to me recently is his view, his announcement that he's going to be attending his legal hearings. Why do you think that is? Well, by the way, he's spent a, a number of days in court with the civil case in New York. He seems to, you know, I, I wrote really detailed descriptions of his first appearances in court, uh, his first arraignment in New York, his first arraignment on federal charges in Florida. And when, when he first was in a courtroom, he's not in charge. The, the, uh, the judge is in charge. He has to rise when the judge comes Right, which is room. why. Why is he, he coming back he again seemed, and again? He seemed uncomfortable and freaked out about it. But I think what has happened since then is that his campaign has become inseparable uh, from mm. his, his legal cases. First of all, it's many ways. It, 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 it's a campaign not just to win the White House, but to stay out of jail. Uh, but he's made the theme of being a victim and getting retribution against those who have victimized him. And he says, by extension, victimized all my supporters, the centerpiece of his campaign. So that's why he's there. It's, indis- it's indistinguishable from his campaign. There's not much of an agenda he's outlining. Uh, uh, for, not for, a lot of policy speed. Yeah, yeah. The big question will be, may work in a primary. Does it work in the general? Yeah, yeah. Jonathan Carl, thank you. Great reporting from the investigative team and you and a great book that covers a lot about Trump. President Biden delivered a speech today commemorating the anniversary of the mass shooting by a white supremacist at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina. In a pretty bold comparison, the president likened Trump's election denialism to the end of the Civil War, when the former Confederate states were unwilling to accept defeat. In fact, he called Trump's big lie the second lost cause. Now we're living in an era of a second lost cause. Once again, there's some in this country trying, trying to turn a loss into a lie, a lie which, if allowed to live, will once again bring terrible damage to this country. This time, the lie is about the 2020 election. 
And he didn't at all shy away from bringing up the racist undertones and the violence that unfolded during the insurrection. We saw something on January 6th we'd never seen before, even during the Civil War. Insurrectionists waving Confederate flags inside the halls of Congress built by enslaved Americans. A mob attacked and called black officers, black veterans, defending the nation those vile of racist names. My next guest has been very vocal about the ways Trump's big lie threatens to disenfranchise the very people who struggled the most to gain and exercise their right to vote. Joining me now is Sherilyn Eiffel. She's the former president and director of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. She's now the Vernon Jordan Distinguished Professor in Civil Rights at Howard Law School. Sherilyn, it's great to see you. Happy New Year. So I wanted Happy to, I mean, I've been to wondering, you. you too, and I've been wondering since I watched this speech what you thought of it. So you watched that bold comparison the president made. He compared Trump's big lie to the aftermath of the Civil War. You've been calling for more vocal action uh, from a lot of people on this point. But what did you make of his speech and, and that point specifically? I thought it was terrific, Jen, uh, in, in the sense that, you know, we've come a long way. Uh, maybe we're we're kind of used to it now, but we didn't used to have presidents who named white supremacy. We didn't mm. used to have presidents who talked about the lost cause. And frankly, we didn't have a country, including many journalists, who were willing to call out Trump's racism. And so it's refreshing to hear President Biden do it. I mean, Trump's behavior has made it impossible to do anything else. Um, obviously, he was in a friendly audience, uh, but mm -hmm. I think it was critically important that we set the terms of this uh, debate and this choice as we head into November. Absolutely. And, and now on the, the flip side, we've seen Nikki Haley, of course, refuse to say that slavery was a cause of the Civil War. Trump claimed that the end of the war could have been negotiated. My view here you is know. that this isn't just a misunderstanding of history. It's more of a dog whistle. But I'm most interested in what your view is on, on their rhetoric in recent weeks or lack of rhetoric, yeah, I guess I should say. It's not a, it's not a dog whistle anymore. It's a foghorn. Uh, yeah. There is a direct appeal uh, to white supremacy. You remember when Trump was running in 2016, uh, he kept being asked to disavow David Duke and to disavow white supremacists. And he, he constantly used a strange language. He didn't want to do it directly because he recognized that that was a critical part of his base. And uh, that now is a critical part of the base of the Republican Party. That is what has happened. And that's mm. why Nikki Haley, uh, will stand in front of an audience and say something so ridiculous about what caused the Civil War. Not because she doesn't know, but because right. she has to tap somewhere in the middle in order to make sure she's appealing to that white supremacist base. And uh, I think that's an, a revelation that we need to come to terms with as well. It's such an important point. It's not a lack of understanding of history. It's an unwillingness to talk about not just history, but what's happened since then. So I did want to talk to you about the 14th Amendment. This is another issue you've been so vocal. You wrote a very thought-provoking piece back in December. And the, the 14th Amendment is actually rooted back in Reconstruction. It was meant to keep insurrectionists out of office, which many people may know. But you also said recently, which made me kind of perk up, that fear is preventing these judges or could prevent these judges from implementing the full power of Section 3. And so I want to ask you, I mean, you're a legal expert. If it weren't for intimidation, if it weren't for that fear, is there any question in your mind on the merits alone that they would uphold the Colorado ruling? Yeah, let me tell you what I mean by fear. 
Um, the 14th Amendment is an incredibly bold, I've called it radical, provision of the Constitution. It was meant and it did reset American democracy. It was the, the beginning and was setting the terms for how we could be a democracy in which Black people were full and complete citizens. And in order to do that, you know, it required, you're going to have to do some strange things, right? And um, one of them was not let insurrectionists back into government. And um, they were very clear about that. There was no confusion about what they meant. Uh, and when I say fear, I mean that there's a fear of the radical nature of the 14th mm. Amendment. I think, of course, uh, unfortunately, we're in a period when when uh, decision makers have to fear for their families and their personal safety. Mm. But I also think that, uh, you know, it's transformative to say that this candidate cannot be on the ballot. But that is what Section 3 of the 14th Amendment says. And so if this case were decided just on the law, on the history, on the intention of the 14th Amendment, on the text of Section 3, Trump would be off the ballot in Colorado. And um, But if you fold in politics and most of the arguments that you've heard saying he should not be removed from the ballot are political. They're about whether or not voters should decide, which is not exactly how we apply constitutional principle. They're about his base will get angry, um, which is essentially kowtowing to white supremacists, essentially nullifying a section of the Constitution, a section of the Constitution directly meant to address who Trump is. It was meant to address insurrection, and the 14th Amendment itself was meant to address uh, ongoing white supremacy. And there are many people who are willing to make that bargain to to mm. suggest that we can ignore that section of the Constitution simply to make peace uh, with Trump's supporters. And I think that would be a terrible step uh, for this country. Now, I think the Supreme Court's got lots of options uh, to mm. try to get around Section 3. But the reality is, if they were using their own standards, history, text, intention, uh, originalism, uh, then they would be upholding the Colorado Supreme Court's decision. The law. The, if you shouldn't, if you don't want to be a, to come to the law, you shouldn't be a part of an insurrection. I did want to ask you, Sherilyn, before I let you go, there's, we have some breaking news. We've learned that uh, Special Counsel Jack Smith was the victim of a swatting call on Christmas. And that's, of course, there's been a trend of that. And basically means yeah. we're going to be watching who's not sure that someone made false emergency calls to prompt a large police presence at his home. And this has, of course, happened a lot to a lot to Judge Tanya Chutkin, the Secretary of State in Maine, even to Marjorie Taylor Greene. What do you make of what's happening with these officials and kind of the frequency of this at such a high level? Jen, this is the Pandora's box that Trump opened. Uh, we mm. know from the January 6 hearings about the kinds of threats that election officials were receiving, Rusty Bowers in uh, Arizona. We know about uh, Shea Moss and Ruby Freeman. And we know about many others around the country who feared for their lives. We'll all remember that day that Gabe Sterling from Georgia stood in front of the mic and said, you're going to get somebody killed. Um, people have asked whether if Trump is reelected, we will see political violence. We are already seeing political violence. These threats um, are very, very serious indeed. Swatting mm -hmm. can result in really terrible um, uh, accidental uh, killings. And we need to be aware that this is part of Trump's mm, brand, the, the menace, the threat of violence. And his followers, this is why what he has done is so irresponsible. His followers are taking up that mantle. And um, this is very, very dangerous indeed. We've heard threats were called into the Colorado Supreme Court. They mm -hmm. have had to fortify as well. 
Uh, this is we are already in that period, and it raises the stakes because it shows us that uh, this has already this door has already been opened. And is tr if Trump is allowed to ascend to the most powerful position in this country and perhaps the world, that door will be flung open. How much worse do you think it will be? So oh. we have to get very, very serious about yes. this threat to democracy. Yes, the political violence threat is such an important one to highlight and lift up. Sherilyn Eiffel, thank you as always. Pleasure talking with you, you this evening. And coming up, Congresswoman Nancy Pelosi joins me on the threat Donald Trump poses to democracy and what Democrats can do to stop him. But first, former President Barack Obama has reportedly expressed concerns about the structure of Joe Biden's reelection campaign and floated David Pluff as the type of senior strategist who might be useful. Well, my old boss, David Pluff, is standing by. He's coming up next. We'll be right back. Addy. Hey, did you know there's a little pink pill? Wait. A what? A little pink pill? Did you say a little pink pill? Yes, the little pink pill. You definitely need to know about this. Are you for real? Just to be clear, you're telling me there's a little pink pill for me? That's right. The little pink pill. And it's called Addy. A-D-D-Y-I. Or Flibanserin. Learn more about the little pink pill at A-D-D-Y-I.com. See full prescribing information and medication guide, including boxed warning regarding severe low blood pressure and fainting in certain settings at Addy.com slash P-I. Or call 844-PINK-PILL. Good news, ladies. There's more. Addy, the FDA-approved little pink pill, is also affordable and can be shipped directly to your front door. That's right. With insurance coverage, Addy is only $20 per month and $0 after month three. If your insurance doesn't cover Addy, there is still a discount program to get you the best possible price and get free shipping right to your door. So now's the time to ask your doctor about Addy. Learn more at Addy.com. That's A-D-D-Y-I.com. So apparently, there was a big meeting recently between two of my former bosses, President Obama and President Biden. And in that meeting, which was first reported by The Washington Post, the two discussed concerns President Obama has about the strategy and operations of the Biden campaign. One source told The Post, quote, Obama grew animated in discussing the 2024 election and former President Donald Trump's potential return to power. The Post reports that Obama has told Biden aides that the campaign needs to move more aggressively, and he suggested that the campaign needs more top-level decision-makers at its headquarters. According to the Post, he mentioned David Pluff, his 2008 campaign manager, my former boss, as the type of senior strategist needed at the Biden campaign. Joining me now is, of course, David Pluff, former campaign manager for Barack Obama's 2008 presidential race. Okay, Pluff. I know. I know you've been telling people, probably including me, for a very long time that you were retired from active campaign work. But I think we can all agree we're kind of in an existential moment here. So if two presidents hypothetically asked you to return to campaign work just for a little while, given how existential this is, would you consider it? What well, good try, Jen. Uh, no. Uh, first of all, I think... No, you uh, would not. Sometimes... <laughs> Well, in, in, I obviously, uh, you know, no surprise. I talked to a lot of my former colleagues who were involved in the effort, give whatever advice uh, I'll, I can, how little that's worth. You know, I think at the end of the day, listen, President Obama, and, and I can offer an informed perspective on this, I think has, uh, you know, complete confidence in the team around Joe Biden because that team won the White House in 2020. Uh, and so my sense is, uh, I think probably what's driving, you know, some of the urgency is just that um, the stakes obviously are enormous. 
But, you know, the Republican primary could be wrapped up very soon, you know, within a couple of weeks. Maybe Nikki Haley will extend it if she wins New Hampshire. So the general election is going to begin. And you just got to make sure everyone's in the right places. We went through this, as you know, heading into the reelect in 2012 and studied the Bush reelect, the Clinton mm-hmm. reelect, the Reagan reelect. George H.W. Bush's reelect, which I don't think handled it well, which is I think there's a lesson there, which is you want the campaign to be as fully empowered as possible. Obviously, there needs mm-hmm. to be coordination with the White House, but to move quickly to make decisions. Uh, and politics is a lot different even now than it was four years ago. Uh, platforms like TikTok obviously are a place where a lot of younger people, but not just younger people, get information. The tools available have changed a lot. So at the end of the day, I think uh, Joe Biden's got the people around him who won the White House uh, once. I think they can win it twice, uh, but they just got to get everybody in the right uh, the right seats. All right. For the plethysteans out there, of which there are many, I'm not going to I'm just going to mark that down. It's not a total door slam of you helping them, but maybe not in a formal role at this moment. But we'll see. OK, so you're still a pundit out there uh, on the outside and you, you just outlined a lot of what they're doing. You're right. A lot of things have changed since you were traveling on the plane and I was traveling on the plane back in 2012 when President Obama was running for reelection. There have been some of these concerns expressed were about the lack of senior decision makers in Delaware and the lack of urgency around setting up national structures around the campaign. There's tons of time to go here for anybody who's bedwetting. But do you share those concerns? I mean, you said you're confident how they're going, but would you like it to be faster? Would you like there to be more decision makers or different uh, means of communicating on the campaign? Well, you know, my sense, and, and obviously I'm not in these rooms every day, right? But my sense is you see the schedules picking up. You know, they've got more new advertising out. I think they're, you know, beginning to place people in the state. So that's all great. And I would remind everybody, and sometimes those of us who work in campaigns are afraid to say this, you know, campaigns matter around the margins. They're kind of a field goal unit, as our friend David Axelrod, Jen, used to say, mm-hmm. uh, which is they're not going to turn a 45% of the vote into 52% of the vote. But a great campaign may be able to get you a point or two. And this is likely to be a close race. So the campaign's not going to change big things, how they handle things like, you know, age, the state of the economy, foreign policy crises. You know, uh, does Donald Trump, you know, try and appeal to the middle or does he continue to double down on the crazy? But but I think the campaign uh, is making strides. And what it's important to remind what what is a campaign in a presidential race? Well, in this particular presidential race in 2024, it's six, maybe seven states. It's probably a couple million people total between swing voters and people that you're concerned about either not turning out or perhaps voting third party, which I think could be a factor in this race. So those are where the campaign really matters matters and can make a big difference. But the big things, you know, how you handle those debates, you know, does Joe Biden convince people, uh, you know, he's up to this job, which I think he clearly is, but there's people that need convincing. Can you make Donald Trump pay the full price for things like abortion, for his desire to be an autocrat, for his economic mm-hmm. policies that are all about helping the rich and screwing the workers. The campaign can help there. Uh, but but some of those big pieces, I think, um, you know, are going to be subject, particularly things like foreign policy and the economy. They're not in control of the campaign. But as you know, in 12, we did a very good job of determining what the economic debate we were going to have with yeah. Mitt Romney was. And we really put it on who was best for the middle class. And by the way, that's a debate I think Joe Biden is really well positioned, as you know well, to win. 
Yeah, the who you're fighting for debate, which is less about data and more about how people feel. And the president gave two big speeches on democracy. There's a lot for people to work with. David Pluff, thank you as always. The Pluffistans hopefully won't be too disappointed for the moment, but thank you for joining me uh, this evening. And coming up, Congresswoman Elise Stefanik was once considered a fairly bipartisan member of Congress. Now she's defending Trump's use of Nazi language. And later, my wide-ranging conversation with Speaker Emerita Nancy Pelosi. We've got so much more to come tonight. We'll be right back. Over the past few weeks, Elise Stefanik has really tried to position herself as the lead crusader against anti-Semitism in this country. She's been on a victory lap ever since her viral grilling of three university presidents at a December congressional hearing. You may have all seen that. And she's been more than willing to take credit for their downfalls, even tweeting, one down, two to go, after the resignation of the president of the University of Pennsylvania. But somehow, here's where it gets tricky. When it comes to the anti-Semitic language of Nazi Germany, Stefanik is singing a much different tune. I want to ask you about something that former President Trump recently said. He referred to migrants as, quote, poisoning the blood of our country. This is language that the Biden campaign, others, says, quote, is parroting Adolf Hitler. Are you comfortable with former President Trump's comments? Well, yet again, we have the media, which is so biased, which is reiterating whatever the talking points the Biden campaign is giving. Yes, I stand by President Trump. And President Trump also has this. Yes. I got to say. It's tough to square being a bold crusader against hate and anti-Semitism when you refuse to condemn language like, say, the former president echoing the words of Adolf Hitler. But this kind of hypocrisy driven by her devotion to Trump isn't really that surprising. For years now, she's been one of his biggest defenders on the Hill. She's a self-described by herself ultra-MAGA supporter and proud of it. Well, this all tracks with the Elise Stefanik of the last six years or so, it's important to remember that this is a monumental shift from the Stefanik who entered Congress as the youngest woman to ever be elected to the House in 2014. At the time, and I remember this well, she was hailed as a fresh new face in the Republican Party, a bipartisan centrist. And for her first few years in Congress, she was exactly that. As one former aide to GOP leadership put it, she was every Democrat's favorite Republican. And that independence streak even continued into the Trump era. In 2015, she criticized Trump's call for a Muslim ban, saying, quote, this is not who we are as a country. And in 2017, she voted against Trump's signature tax cuts. So what happened? Why did every Democrat's favorite Republican suddenly choose to go ultra MAGA? Well, it's called ambition. Former President Trump, in his interview with me, said he, quote, likes the concept of picking a woman as his vice president. If called upon, would you serve as his vice president? Well, I, of course, would be honored to serve in any capacity in a Trump administration. I'm proud to be the first member of Congress to endorse his reelection. I'm proud to be a strong supporter of President Trump, and he's going to win this November. As striking as Elise Stefanik has, bur- has her turn has been, it's not really that complicated. It's about ambition superseding values. And that's not just the story of Elise Stefanik, unfortunately. It's the story of the modern-day Republican Party. Something tells me House Speaker Emerita Nancy Pelosi is going to have some thoughts about all of this, and she joins me next. Addie. Hey, did you know there's a little pink pill? Wait, a what? A little pink pill? Did you say a little pink pill? Yes, the little pink pill. 
You definitely need to know about this. Are you for real? Just to be clear, you're telling me there's a little pink pill for me? That's right. The little pink pill. And it's called Addy. A-D-D-Y-I. Or Flibanserin. Learn more about the little pink pill at A-D-D-Y-I.com. See full prescribing information and medication guide, including boxed warning regarding severe low blood pressure and fainting in certain settings at Addy.com slash P-I. Or call 844-PINK-PILL. Good news, ladies. There's more. Addy, the FDA-approved little pink pill, is also affordable and can be shipped directly to your front door. That's right. With insurance coverage, Addy is only $20 per month and $0 after month three. If your insurance doesn't cover Addy, there is still a discount program to get you the best possible price and get free shipping right to your door. So now's the time to ask your doctor about Addy. Learn more at Addy.com. That's A-D-D-Y-I.com. So here we are, eight and a half years, if you can believe it, since Donald Trump came down that escalator. He's on the verge of cleansing the Republican nomination again, unless something wild happens. His threats, not just to people, but to our democracy, have become more pronounced and more dangerous. And his party, for the most part, seems unwilling or just afraid to do anything about it. When I think about who is willing to stand up to Donald Trump and how to do it, I often think of the person standing across from him in, the, in this photo. This is actually my Twitter profile photo for a while. I'm not in this picture, obviously, pointing her finger at him. And that woman, Speaker Emeritus Nancy Pelosi, joins me now. It's great to see you. Happy New Thank Year. You. Happy Thank New you Year and a healthy one to you. Thank Please. you. So I wanted to start just with January 6th and the threats to our democracy and how important it is because— um, Mitt Romney, who is a defender of democracy and has yes. been brave at many moments, but he said recently to the New York Times, quote, as a Biden campaign theme, I think the threat to democracy pitch is a bust. January 6th will be four years old by the election. People have processed it one way or another. Biden needs fresh material and to attack rather than kicking a dead political horse. Now, my view is that this is about how Trump will govern. But but what do you think in terms of a central argument and how central it will be in this election? Well, I, with all due respect to Senator Romney, and I do respect him, I, I, I think a campaign is what you make it. Mm-hmm. And when we talk about democracy and why January 6th was important, we have to convey to people what it means to them. So I I see his point, well, just in isolation, this is not enough. But what it means to them, a democracy, it's about freedom. It's about, he says, Trump says, Obamacare sucks. Mm. Forgive my crudeness, Mm. but I'm just quoting Mm -hmm. the president. You're quoting him. It's not your word. (laughs) (laughs) Obamacare sucks. No, the Affordable Care Act cures. Mm -hmm. So he says he wants to undo that. He criticizes the senator's who, did, who voted um, against terminating mm-hmm. it. And so this is about freedom, mm. freedom to have access to health care, freedom to have health care in terms of reproductive freedom for women mm. and families as the size, timing, and if mm. they will have a family, a freedom of, of people to uh, be able to have uh, care at home so that they can have the freedom to work and grow their families in a, a, a very productive way for the future. So it's not just about uh, the ideal of freedom, which would be enough reason. Mm-hmm. Our Constitution, the Congress of the United States being so—there would be enough reason. But you have to translate it to the kitchen table, because what he, is in truth about what he says is people make votes on a different, in a different way. And I believe they make votes as to what comes to that kitchen table— 
Affordable health care mm-hmm. is not only about health of a person. Mm-hmm. It's about their financial health, being able to afford health care. What we did in the IRA to reduce the cost mm-hmm. of insulin from five $600 a month for seniors on Medicare to $35 a month, the Republicans want to overturn that. Uh, what, they, what we did about a, a, um, the secretary of HHS being able to negotiate for lower prescription drug policy, mm-hmm. they want to take that to court and overturn that. So this is what it means to you. And your financial security is part of your freedom. So it's about making it real for people. And, and that's so important because people vote in that way. I did want to ask you, I mean, you wrote this powerful op-ed. I reread it today again about the anniversary of January 6th. And you were there that day. You were so heroic that day. And you outlined a lot of what happened. And recently this weekend, um, Donald Trump repeated the lie that th- those convicted for their involvement are hostages. He used the term hostages. Yeah. And I just wanted to know what you thought of that or what that your response was when you heard him say that. Well, he's a disgrace. Let's put it this way. But we've known that for a long time. His disrespect for the Congress or for the Capitol and the rest has been clear. He came to the Capitol and gave a presidential medal of freedom to one of his thug friends right there. on the. Get out of here. This is our place. He talked politics on the floor of the House. We don't do that. We talk policy. Mm-hmm. And in, in any event, let's not even worry so much about what he says, except that is what he says he's going to do. Mm-hmm. And that is what we have to convey to people. You understand this. He has no faith in, and a belief in Social Security and Medicare or anything like that. Mm-hmm. He, again, thinks Affordable Care Act's Obamacare sucks, to use mm. his uh, crude, uh, always crude language. So um, these people who still support him, who are they? They're people who don't share our values about respect for the dignity and worth of every person. Uh, they're rich people who don't want to pay their fair share of taxes, so they pour money into the Republican mm. system. But then there are people who really do have serious concerns what does it mean to their family, whether it's innovation or mm-hmm. uh, globalization or immigration, or women being more involved, LBGQ and the rest mm-hmm. of that? They have concerns. And, so, and we have to make sure they understand that what we're doing, what President Biden has been doing with all of his legislation is to make sure everyone has access and, and has and has their vote is heard and that their rights are respected. I did want to ask you because, you know, you are Speaker Emerita and you are so familiar with the rules of the House. We're so we spend a lot of time talking about the threat of Trump and the rule. Yeah, yeah. But this weekend, when she was asked, Elise Stefanik was asked about whether she would certify the election. I mean, she's in Republican leadership. She didn't commit to that. Are, are we under should we be focusing more on what Republican leaders might do to help Trump or or not uh, do the well, roles that they were elected to do? Well, understand this. You, you know and you've shown that he has said that he would not even promise not to engage in overthrowing the government, the pledge yes. in, in Illinois. In Illinois. He's, he's said that this is— Which he signed. To, yes, to, to, so people who don't aren't familiar with what you're talking about. He signed it in 2016 and 2020 and did not sign yeah, it, which, which stuck out to me, and clearly you too as well. Yeah. But the fact is, is that uh, it isn't a question of whether she's going to certify it. Mm-hmm. It's a question of what the American people 
are going to do. Mm -hmm. And we have to make sure they know their votes will be counted as cast and that whoever wins the vote of the Electoral College, I wish we didn't have it, but we do, Mm -hmm. uh, will be certified. And uh, God bless Mike Pence. He had the courage to follow the rules, to do what was right, even though he was being threatened with his life by the president of the United States inciting uh, the insurrection that he did and calling on them to take it out on, on Pence. But Pence knew there is no power to overturn what the public has done. Now, I do know the rules of the House very well, and I know the Constitution very well. And they were trying to man- manipulate it at the time. The House should choose. Mm-hmm. They wanted to take it to a place where uh, it was a mess to, to certify the the um, Electoral College. So the Constitution says if they if that isn't decisive, then the House of Representatives voting by state. Mm-hmm. That means California, with 40 million people, has one vote. Yeah. That means other states, which uh, with not even a million people, have one vote. And that's just not— our founders did not have that. That was intention. not what they that was not what they intended. But people's voice are powerful. We are going to sneak in a very quick break. Speaker Meredith is going to stay with me and we'll be right back in a moment. We're back with House Speaker Emerita Nancy Pelosi. So, Speaker Pelosi, just when we think it can't get crazy or it kind of does um, in an interview just tonight, Donald Trump made an interesting remark. Interesting is a one way of describing it about the economy. And I just want to play it for you. We have an economy that's so fragile. And the only reason it's running now is it's running off the fumes of what we did, what the Trump administration, it's just running off the fumes. And when there's a crash, I hope it's gonna be during this next 12 months because I don't wanna be Herbert Hoover. I mean, basically he wants it to crash because he thinks it's good for him. We know it always comes back to him, but what's your reaction to that? Well, it's just another manifestation of the insensitivity and the grotesqueness of this person. Mm -hmm. What he doesn't care what that means to the kitchen table interest of America's working families. Maybe some of his rich friends who pour money into his campaign because they don't want to have to pay taxes Mm -hmm. might take notice of his um, ineptitude, not understanding that the economy should And by the way, mm-hmm. that was a stupid statement he made. He also yeah. made an untrue statement. Yes. We're not living off his fumes. No. We are not living off his fumes. Uh, the, Joe Biden has done a remarkable job as president of the United States. Just around 14 million jobs, maybe more, mm-hmm. by now with the latest report. Lowest unemployment, cut it in half. The path of inflation going down. He has been remarkable, and he has done it in a way that has justice, social, economic, mm-hmm. uh, environmental, justice in every way. That's not anything this person would understand. No, he's a bit of a revisionist historian. Yeah, I mean, he calls himself a messiah. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I guess he doesn't know much about the messiah. <laughs> He says he wants the economy to crash. I guess he doesn't know what that means to America's working That family. may be true. Um, it's time for an intervention. Maybe his family, maybe some Republicans. Maybe if they're watching, you're calling for an intervention. I just ask you, I mean, in one of your many roles you've served in is uh, on the Intelligence Committee. Yes. And uh, Secretary Lloyd Austin uh, obviously was recently in the ICU. He did not disclose that, um, which has, has received a strong reaction from Republicans and Democrats as well. How concerned are you about that lack of disclosure? Well, my first concern is about his health Mm -hmm. and 
what the nature of that is and why he would not disclose it. But the chain of command is something that really does have to be respected. And the president of the United States is the commander in chief. Uh, he should have known. But again, we don't know the particulars of this. Uh, but I do think that uh, this could have been handled much better. Do you feel still feel confident in him serving as secretary of defense? Well, I'm a big fan of, of, of the secretary. I think he's done a remarkable job as secretary of defense. He commands great respect. In fact, I was going to give him a call <laughs> this past week about something, and I thought I'll just do it when I get back to D.C. But um, uh, that's really something up to the, him and the president of the United States, because nobody knows better than the secretary of defense and the commander in chief about the chain of command. I think I know what you're going to say here, but in our limited time left, do you have any resolutions or hopes for the new year? Just win, baby. We got to win this election. We've launched our save our health care campaign, which will duplicate what we did in 2017-18 to make sure the public knew what was at stake in the election, that the health care is on the ballot and it's being on the ballot puts every person on the ballot. They're good, their well-being, their opportunity, a better future for their children and strength of our democracy. Speaker Emerita Pelosi, it's Happy New Year. <laughs> Wonderful to have you on our first My show pleasure. back. I could talk to you about every topic under the sun. <laughs> it's always great to have you here. Great I think many you. people watching probably share your New Year's resolutions <laughs> or your hopes as well and are now going to be interested in uh, what you just described. But I'm very grateful um, that Thank you were here with us tonight. Thank you so much for your time. Um, so that does it for me tonight. We will, of course, be back on Sunday, and we'll have lots to talk to you about. That does it for me tonight. You can catch the show every Sunday at 12 p.m. and Monday at 8 p.m. on MSNBC. And don't forget to follow the show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. For now, goodbye from Washington, and we'll see you next week. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com.